Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, my fellow diggers, and welcome back to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Christian Swain, that's me, and I am right here behind the mic in San Francisco. Deeper Digs is the companion podcast to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, or as we like to call it, the RNRIP around here. Deeper Digs, as you might well guess, is where we stop and dig into it a little bit to look closer at people, places, topics that tie in with our larger story of rock and roll. All of our podcasts, and we've got a nice little family going now, are available at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, and our personal favorite, the donate link. Please stop by. Oh yeah, that's all the business. What time is it? Now. Today's guest is Richard Lloyd. Here is something off his 1979 solo album, Alchemy. Misty Eyes by Richard Lloyd. Richard is a really special and criminally underrated guitarist, and he was a founding member of the seminal band Television. Television is also sorely underrated. They didn't generate big sales or go out on arena tours, but they punched way above their weight in terms of how innovative and influential they were and still are. Television gets labeled as a proto-punk band, and, and they did come out of the late 70s New York City punk scene, uh, but really, they defy labels. Their 1977 debut album, Marky Moon, is quirky and neurotic, full of short, punchy songs, but any resemblance to the Ramones or the Sex Pistols answer right there. If you forced us to label it, we might call it progressive punk. Uh, lots of energy and attitude, but the playing on Marky Moon is clean, jazzy, and sophisticated, even delicate at times. Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine didn't fall into defined roles like rhythm guitarist and lead guitarist. They just played together, weaving, syncopating, juxtaposing. It's really, really special. When it was released, Marky Moon was well-received by the critics. That's how we heard about it way out here in California. Robert Hilburn gave it a great review in the LA Times. Sales at the time were unspectacular, but Marky Moon has never been out of print, and it still shows up all the time on the various greatest albums lists. We'll talk about Marky Moon and the 1978 follow-up adventure. We'll also get into Richard Lloyd's solo debut, another underrated gem titled Alchemy. On October 24th, 2017, Richard Lloyd published his autobiography, Everything is Combustible. Friends, we read a lot of these books, memoirs and bios and anything about rockers. This one is especially good, a, a terrific read, and we draw Richard out a little bit on that too. It's a really interesting, wide-ranging interview, so let's get right to it.
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, Richard Lloyd. We're so glad to have you uh, and some of your time today to discuss uh, a naked lunch of a book, Everything is Combustible. Well, I thank you for having me with you and uh, look forward to talking with you. Yeah, so so after all these years and with an obvious talent for crafty writing, uh, why did you decide to write this book? What, was it was it cathartic? Um, you know, was it difficult or easy? You know, did the words flow? Well, the words flew and they flowed. <laughs> I don't know the, the past tense of flow. <laughs> Flawed. Flowed. Flowed. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was pretty easy because I have a voice recognition software that works very well. Uh, I didn't actually type a mm-hmm. single thing because when I first got a keyboard and realized that typing was back and I had it in high school and didn't like it there, QWERTY, uh, you know, I, and it was giving me wrist problems. Right, right. Uh, so I went out and I bought some software to turn your voice into typing. Mm-hmm. It's improved, it's improved, it's improved over the years. So now it's like a pretty good secretary, except you have to speak the pronunciation comma so that uh, your sentences are complete period new paragraph just <laughs> to think like that right right you have you had to learn a, a, a technique so that it would uh, uh, come out correctly and be uh, legible after uh, after you're done That's right. right yeah kind yeah of- it's a kind of language uh, adjustment that you have to make. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, it's it's a memoir style. Uh, you know, it's That's these right. these vignettes. Uh, you you kind of uh, even though it, it flows chronologically, it does uh, go back and forth in time a little bit, right? Yes, it does. It's uh, based upon vignettes that I would my memory would come up with, and uh, I would put them down on a document. And title them Richard's memoir, you know the Velvet meets Jimmy story, or the uh, television goes into the studio story, you know. And then I would compile them till I had enough to. Uh, I had like more than four hundred pages. Right, right, so, right. Some samples off, and uh, actually, I sent a sample off to Norton, and I got the wrong lady. She was doing agriculture agricultural books and uh, she told me to talk to the you know rock and roll people but she didn't know who they were <laughs> so I sort of procrastinated some more and then uh, I did a foreword on a book about John Lennon as viewed from the perspective of the Gurdjieff teaching and it was called uh, John Lennon a life something uh, and uh, I wrote the foreword for it so I, I asked the guy Did, are you interested in any of these vignettes I have the, these hundreds of stories and he said absolutely and when he got a load of them you know he really really liked them said you know I'd love to publish this so we put together a, a manuscript and uh, that became the book yeah, and it is a lengthy book. It's uh, you know, it's four hundred pages, uh, and uh, it's it's quite an honest, no holds barred uh, uh, look at your life, uh, you know, warts and all. So, you yeah. know, I, I, all of well, us have at least one. Warts. What's what's that? I don't call them warts. Uh, other people might. I call them experiences. Right. Right, 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 right. And, you know, over time, the longer you live, uh, those things uh, build upon us. So, you know, all of us have at least one book uh, uh, in us. And, you know, you actually sat down and and banged it out. And I I love the line, uh, the story of an old soul acting like a juvenile delinquent on a reform school planet. Well, that's what I think we're – I think that's where we're at. But for some people, it's a grade school – some people it's kindergarten, some people it's college, and some people it's a penitentiary. You know, it depends mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you're coming from. Right, and how we take it all in and, and how we adjust right. to uh, to the experiences. Uh, you know, every choice leads to to another set of choices, and, uh, and, you know, you're beholden to all the choices that you've made in the past. 
One of the things I like to say is that the biggest problem in the world is that people take themselves personally. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, so you were born in Steel Country, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You were raised Catholic, uh, lapsed as you say, but it it seems there was a lot going on in that newly born brain of yours. Can you talk a little bit about how you look at life very different from a very young age? Well, I looked up and I saw people that uh, I could I could see their emotions, and I could see their I could almost read their thoughts, and I I remember wondering how come I know what they're saying? I haven't learned their language, you know. And this is when I was months old, and uh, so your memories go all the way back to almost the moment of your birth. Probably in the womb memories. Uh-huh. Some of these sensations of having been in a place of greater freedom. You know, in the womb, you're floating in the ambionic fluid, and uh, there might be an aftertaste of that left behind after you come down the birth canal. And for most people, they, they meet with a forgetter. Uh, there's lethe where the, the guardian angel comes and presses their, then puts this little mark in the Jewish Apocrypha. This little mark is to go, shh, so you don't know what cards you're going to be dealt in life. The indentation between your nose and your upper lip. That's right. That indentation is supposed to make you forget what you've done beforehand and uh, allow you to play life, you know, fair and square. So you got missed. Well, I don't think that they pushed very hard or <laughs> or they or they missed. Yeah, or they went to the side or something like that. Because I always have had this uh, sense that this is not the only plane. Mm-hmm. Especially being born into a clumsy little chubby body that wouldn't obey my will. You know, it wouldn't fly. It would wouldn't stand up till I was, you know, five six months old and had to sweat my way up the sides of the crib. And I remember it very distinctly. Uh-huh. I remember all the colors, the the textures of the living room and the slats on the crib and standing up, and my head wobbling. Because my head was too big for my the neck muscles. Yeah, yeah. My legs were twitching and wobbling, and my hands let go of the slats. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to lose consciousness if I fall. And I remember I fell back on my diaper, and I rolled back on my back, and I hit my head, and I heard bong. Not bells or stars, but, you know, I got zonked. But I looked around and I was conscious and I hadn't lost consciousness and that was very important to me. I was deadly afraid of losing consciousness. I don't know why at that point, but I looked at both my hands and I took my left hand and I made a fist out of it with my volition, which it would obey. And I was suddenly struck with this enormous, uh, what do you call those moments, existential moment. The epiphany? An epiphany beyond an yeah, an epiphany, but like one thought is a piano note. This was like a gigantic chord, like the end of uh, day in the life. An end of the <laughs> the end of the day of the life. Yeah, sure, the beginning of the life. <laughs> no, I mean and the it, Beatles song, the end of the day. I know of what life. you mean. <laughs> Trust me, I know what you mean. But what I'm saying is that there was the thought that. I had to grow up and I had to learn language and I had to learn to stand and walk and run and do all these things amongst all these other people who were grown up and they didn't seem to be right in the head to me or in the gut to me. It seemed that uh, what they were saying didn't uh, agree with what they were feeling. And so I got the impression that they were asleep or unconscious or or daydreaming or lying, whether purposefully or and to themselves as well. 
and they accepted the human limitations, you know, that uh, people go by in life. And, and you, I never, you recognize this from a very young age. From a very young age, yeah. It's the first thing I recognized. It's very unusual, very special. Well, I don't know if I'm special, but, uh, you know, I can see myself from outside myself. A permanent out-of-body experience. <laughs> <laughs> permanent, which which maybe led to some other things in uh, in your life that you had to deal with to uh, live in that state. So you you moved to Greenwich Village, uh, I guess, just as the area is blowing up uh, in the beats, the folky, and the early rock periods, right? Yep, in the fifty middle fifties. I mean, I was six years old, so it had to have been fifty six or seven, fifty seven or eight. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you know the sixties came and everything blew up. By yeah, the time I grew up with it. I was yeah. too young to be a beatnik, a little too old to be a hippie. So I was uh, in between, in that gray area in between. I was neither, and my compatriots were neither either. We became heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a jock. I didn't want to be a. I was judicious, but I didn't want it uh, to cripple my freedom. Yeah, now you you went to Stuyvesant, right? Stuyvesant. Oh, Stuyvesant. I'm sorry, I'm a West Coaster. I, don't, I can get that wrong. Stuyvesant. Yeah. Yes, the guy who land who bought um, you know Manhattan Island or a part of it with apparently you know a for small, twenty-five bucks, right? <laughs> Twenty-four dollars worth of trinkets, but they weren't trinkets; they were knives, yeah. pots, pans, valuable things to the natives that they didn't have that would help them in their life. I mean, it was it, was, it wasn't just uh, like Mardi Gras costume jewelry. I don't think anyway. There's a rock in Inwood Park at the top of Manhattan that commemorates the place where the Shirakapak. Indians sold or gave him the permission to use a bit of swamp, mosquito-infested downtown in order to dock. And that's where it all started. Well, Stuyvesant High School is one of the top. It's a, at the time, it was all boys, and it was all science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, quite, quite the high school. Love to learn, love science, still love chemistry and physics and uh, astrobiology and all those kinds of things. So nuclear physics, I'm crazy about it. Yeah, that comes through in the book. You're quite the student. You'll 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 go deeply into uh, uh, any subject uh, and right. uh, and become kind of obsessed by it, right? Kind of, yeah. I try to get everything I can get my hands on on a particular subject. And if I was, I'm serious, if I'm on an airplane, you know, and people want to know, oh, what do you do? If I say I'm an entertainer or I'm a rock guitarist, the whole flight becomes about that. Right. And, but if you ask them, well, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm a plumber. I go, plumber isn't nothing. No. What do you think about elbow joints? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk I about elbow about, joints for four hours. I want hours. to right, talk right. about plumbing. I want to learn about plumbing. All right. Or, uh, you know, hedge funds or whatever it is. You know, I find interest is interesting. You ask people what they're interested in. Most people can't come up with a significant number of things that they're interested in. And I'm interested in interest itself. Yeah, I, I get you. Meta. All things, all things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meta interest. They're all pieces to a big puzzle. That's right. So you, you know, through your teens and early adulthood, uh, you you have many adventures. Most famous, most famously, you were punched by Jimi Hendrix. Uh, can and can he you cried. talk? He can, cried. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, can you talk about how how you took that and how you used that moment, which, which is quite differently than how most people would after getting smacked around? Well, 
first of all, it was Jimi Hendrix, and I looked up to him. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I didn't understand why he punched me. Punched me three times, face left, stomach right, face left, and I sat down. And I just thought, like, because I'd read about Chinese boxers, and if they hear about some great boxer, they'll go get their ass kicked by him in order to steal some of their chi. Right. So I, I sat down and I thought, how do I not lose this energetic impulse that just arrived through his fists? And I thought to myself, hey, packs a pretty good wallop for a skinny black guy. Yeah, but the big thing was, was taking it in and realizing that in some cosmic way, he, who Jimmy was quite the cosmic guy from what I've read, Absolutely. Uh, he, he had given you a small amount of his magic. Maybe that's the case, or maybe I took it. Ah. Maybe it was a, maybe it was just a fortuitous moment of grace. Because afterwards, uh, I heard people say, somebody tried to beat up Jimmy, we'll kill him, his handlers. And I knew they meant it, and I hadn't laid a hand on him. So I sat there till they closed the place down, about an hour. So the guy with the mop said, listen, I got to lock up, you got to go. And upstairs was a parking lot, and Jimmy was there waiting for me. And he rolled down his window on his Corvette and crooked his finger at me to come over and I went over and he put out his hands and took my hands, started sobbing and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. And I was like, Jimmy, go to go bed, go to bed. It's okay, it's fine, don't worry about it, I'm not injured, you know? But he wouldn't let go of my hands, literally. I could pulling them and he wouldn't let go for, it must have been 15, 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, finally he let go of my hands and rolled up the window and drove away. And then my friend Velvet jumped out from behind uh, some doorway he was hiding and it nearly scared the crap out of me. Yeah, Velvet, Velvet who introduced you to Jimmy, I believe. That's right. Velvet was uh, Jimmy's only guitar student. Mm -hmm. It's only... Uh, well, what do you could Jimmy was his mentor. Yeah. So I mean, Velvet would learn uh, licks from Jimmy and then he'd run and teach you, right? Basically, because I lived near Jimmy's house. Mm -hmm. Apartment in 69 or whenever he had that apartment on 12th Street. And I lived only if I lived on Jane Street. It was not that far away. So he would call me from a payphone and say, can I come over? And I had a guitar there, of course. And uh, he would play things that Jimmy was teaching him, and I would pick him up, and we would pass the guitar back and forth. It's an right. amazing experience. Amazing experience. So, so yeah. in, in your teens, if you don't mind, things get very dark. Um, Do they? <laughs> you had to live with a with a mental condition that uh, seemed to deteriorate your world. Uh, manic depression is what we call it now. But but back right. then, you were institutionalized for just being quote unquote insane. Well, they called it schizophrenia. They didn't know they didn't have manic depression or bipolar. Uh, you know, I would have manic episodes, and I mean they were real. I think I had epilepsy when I was a young child because I used to have uh, dazes where time would slow down mm -hmm. or speed up. Mm -hmm. Or I don't know if it would slow down for me and speed up for you or speed up for me and slow down for you. But there were times when time itself, my perception of it changed so radically that I could think a hundred thoughts in between every word that you or I spoke and, and it you, was dazzling I loved it and but other it, other people couldn't understand other people weren't privy mm -hmm. so there was no point there's no point in uh, telling them anything about it I'm sure other children have these kinds of spells 
come upon them and then they just dissuade themselves from believing it after a time because it doesn't meet up with the uh, quote-unquote norm right of societal limitations right right or it's thought of as an illness it's a brainstorm an electrical storm in the temporal lobe if you have temporal lobe epilepsy mm-hmm. it often leads to a increase in religiosity and intelligence and you know it's a brainstorm yeah I have brainstorms yeah and you were institutionalized a couple of times, um, uh, both in New York and New Jersey. Um, but what I liked about it is that it's you kind of you deal with it and you learn to survive and even thrive from it. I, I kept a quote from the from the book. It mm. it was insane to be insane, and I was sane. It's like you thrived. And here's another quote. While I haven't been to the moon or Everest, I survived two old state mental institutions during the dark ages of treatment. That's true. Yeah. How many people can say they've been through the one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Right. Watch the movie, but that's like kindergarten. Oh, compared to the reality. Right. Compared to the reality of the of the the building. Or the buildings or the complex that they would, I mean, rich people would throw away their uh, inbred children, put them away. People put away their kids forever and ever. And then there were the true schizophrenics and broke, which is schizophrenos or broken mind. Right. From the Greek, broken soul, phrenos. And so they thought I had that. Every time I, they thought I had that, I cleared up. <laughs> yeah, thank, thankfully, and yeah. uh, and got out. But you 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 take it as not a a negative or a weight, uh, no. you know, or, or a monkey on your back. It's 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 just another adventure. It's just another moment in this thing we call life. Well, I do remember after Greystone State, which is where uh, I found out later Woody Guthrie passed. Right. Right. Yeah, Bob, you, Bob used to go visit him there, right? Yeah, I might have been there then. Who knows? Um, but anyway, they let me out to a drug halfway house that was in the middle of a around-the-clock cleanup, and they handed me a toothbrush, and they said, uh, follow this guy with a broom with the toothbrush to clean the rug. And I did that for about six hours, and then I said, no, I'm out of here. (laughs) They all were like, oh, you go back to drugs. and You're damn right I will. (laughs) If you make me do this. (laughs) Don't go. Don't go. And I I went all the way home from where it was in Newark to where my parents were then in Montclair, New Jersey. I walked home, which is why I often tell people, you know, they're, they're like, you got a dollar for the bus to Atlanta? I'm like, well, you're going north, and Atlanta's south. You ought to be walking <laughs> the other way. <laughs> you ought to be moving towards your destination, no right. matter what happens. Right, 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 right. So you are an internal explorer. Let's talk a little bit about the drugs, and 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 I mean drugs of all kind. It it sounds like you're able to keep a handle on it until you couldn't later on. It also sounds like you had an appetite similar to the mythical Keef. If I could, yeah. one one question on the drug use and how you used it. It seems it wasn't about getting to oblivion, but exploration. Is, is that fair to say? Oblivion would have been horrid. Oblivion would have been, you know, the antithesis is what, what you take is something that will cause oblivion and then fight it with all your might. It's a game of willpower. You know, to take sedatives and stay awake, to take ups and not go running around cutting out word, you know, letters from a newspaper. You know, it's a battle. It's a, it's a spiritual uh, war going on. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's that's what your interest was in most of the, uh, the right. taking of, uh, of drugs, right? Well, that's probably one of the things that saved me from 
going down the tubes, you know, standing in the toilet. Mostly drug use is standing in the toilet and pushing the word flush. Right. And right. hoping you don't go down too fast. But, you know, you're going to go down. Yeah. So yeah. got to realize that. Yeah, that, yeah, that takes some time to figure out. That centripetal force. <laughs> it's going to get you sooner or later. An opposite reaction. And something has to spin out, spin off. And in my case, I always thought maybe, just maybe if I'm fortunate enough, it'll be some kind of art or music or something will, you know, be the counterpoint to this destructive self-behavior. Well, uh, that leads to my next question. So, you know, you continue your adventures of all kind. All the while, you're learning guitar mostly by yourself, almost completely solo, right? Almost completely by myself, that's right. <laughs> I did not want to learn anybody else's licks. I mean, Jimmy, well, that was an exception because he was teaching Velvet through his own songs. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, although we did at one point, he made us go out or made Velvet go out and then Velvet told me to do it and bought the Mickey Baker jazz method of guitar which is a little slim guitar instruction book as he was learning jazz stuff, jazz chords and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we got into that. But other than that, it was all me on my own. I didn't want to know Clapton's lick, you know, because if it was good, it would end up coming out somehow. Yeah, and this went on for years. This is not something you did for, you know, six months or a year. This, this went on for several years, right? It went on until television was formed. Right, which is kind of like your first band, right? Yeah, well, it was my second band. I had formed a band called Crossfire that year, and but we only did one gig at the Policeman's Benevolent Association ah, yes. mm -hmm. in Queens. But other than that, no, I did, and I kept hidden. I played the electric guitar with no amplifier on purpose. I didn't, well, I didn't have an amplifier. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have enough money to have an amplifier. And uh, if I had to be a vagabond, I couldn't carry an amplifier around. So I just played a Stratocaster or a Telecaster um, on electric. And I didn't want anybody to hear me because I was, uh, what do you call, woodshedding. Right. And I was trying to become good. There were so many people who were better than me, and there still are so many people that are better than me at playing guitar. You know, the only difference is that most of their guitars are in the closet, and they've gone off to some plan B, or they're just, and they really did make it, and they're famous, and they're awfully damn good. There's a certain pantheon, it's like liquor. There's top shelf, and there's nothing beyond top shelf. You know, uh, if I could, let me ask you two things uh, about that. One is that you, you, the way you play your leads or the way you record your leads with the feeling that all of those guitar gods um, are in the room with you as you actually record it, which... which yeah, sneaking which, a look over me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> making sure you do it I'm right. right? But yet, I, that's the standard I want to reach, and so that's the standard I have to pretend, you know, imagine. Pretend is not the right word, but yeah, imagine, imagine. right. Imagine that that's the company I'm keeping while I'm playing. Yeah, and then the other question is 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 that I want to point out is that you you left yourself no plan B. No, I didn't want a plan B. No, no way. Everybody said get a plan B. Music, you know, you'll never make it in music. And I was like, well, it's already a done deal. So you know, if it's this is like war again, and to use a, a metaphor. And you burn your bridges behind you so the troops can't rebel and defect. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, because wow. there's always yeah. a part of you that wants to just give it a quit. Mm -hmm. and, but as long as 55% uh, wants to go on, you'll go on. 
you know, so you don't leave yourself those escape routes. Close them off. Close them off. That's right. Wow. And that way you'll only head in one direction. Even though it may look like you're going in the wrong direction, you'll know where you're going. If you're paying close attention, yes. Yeah. yeah. Close attention and have some sort of internal compass. Right, right. So you made it out west. You, uh, you actually came to L.A., San Francisco, hung out with Led Zeppelin. Keith Moon's story is hilarious. The Stones, uh, getting up with John Lee Hooker. And then you take a fast car across the country to get back to New York because you heard a scene was starting up. But that car wasn't – it wasn't – it was a Lotus that didn't go straight from L.A. to San Francisco – I mean L.A. to New York. It went – meandered to get there, right? That's right. It wasn't mine, and I hitched a ride, and uh, I don't know how I got the ride. But And the guy said, look, I'm going to New York, but I'm going, like, up into Montana, and I'm going down to New Orleans, and I'm going, you know, I'm going all over the place. You have to, if you want to go with me across the country, you have to abide by where I, I go. And I said, well, that's fine, you know. So we went up to like uh, the mountains in Montana or whatever it was and where, you know, cowboy people wore cowboy boots and stuff like that. And we went down to New Orleans where, as it happened, Led Zeppelin were in town and that's where they were staying while they flew to other places. And uh, we stayed there. Yeah, like common in the day. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then we drove to New York. And on the way to New York, the Mercer Arts Center fell down. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, I mean, you, 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 the reason you were going back to New York is because you heard that there was a scene starting up. That's and, right. Uh, and you got there, and, and, and the Mercer comes tumbling down. I guess the New York doll scene kind of morphs into something different, and that leads you to Terry Ork's uh, Chinatown flat, right? Well, not quite so quickly um i arrived in new york and uh the mercer art center had fallen down but i quickly found out that max's kansas city was the hot spot for all the everybody right. artists you know warhol people uh musicians etc and the, the back room which was this very small space actually with the number of tables and booths in it was like the place to be and you couldn't get in there just uh on your good looks alone so i don't know how i managed to become one of the regulars i guess i was pretty boy at the time and so <laughs> there is that there is that they wanted uh, me around you know and so wild I was child around. wild child probably helps too the wild child definitely helped. And, uh, you know, I went to, uh, and I had no home. And I, you know, lived with a number of girls and, uh, and boys and uh, did what I could to survive while playing my guitar unelectrified. Unelectrified by yourself. By myself. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. No. I mean, but, yeah, but how many years is this that you are, you know, woodshedding alone? Well, 17 to 26. Yeah, 10 years. That's a long time to just buy yourself so that you don't get, let us say, infected by other right. people's playing. But it does create... A, a certainly a sense of originality. I would hope so. Oh, it definitely shows through uh, in your plane. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, so, yeah, which is why I don't get hired for a lot of gigs because people want guitarists who don't upset the whatever it is, the apple cart that's going. They're like the lead vocalist is famous and he wants a guitarist that sounds just, it sounds really good, but like a neutral taste no no you know like jimmy Hendrix. well i was gonna say jimmy had that problem a lot he had that problem a lot <laughs> yeah he got kicked out because yeah, he, several he, times right yeah. i don't want that to happen <laughs> but you know 
<laughs> oh, so so from Max's Kansas City, and uh, you know you um, uh, sleeping wherever you could sleep, and uh, you know still partying as hard as you could. Uh, you do meet Terry Ork, right? I met Terry Ork, and he said, "Oh, my roommate just moved out. There's a room in the front of this. He had a loft, oh, a loft uh, apartment with like basically three rooms." It was a walk through, you know, uh, from the front of the street to the back alley, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there was a room in the front, so I stayed there. And uh, the deal was that I would provide drugs and uh, companionship, and he would pay all the bills and the rent and everything else. That's a pretty good deal. That's a very good deal. Right. That's right. Right. He ended right. up providing most of the drugs anyway. <laughs> so it was an even better deal for you, right? Yeah, even better. So, so uh, now I would say this is where the electricity really begins. Uh, you know, um, the continuation of practice uh, alone, as we've now determined, is you know close to ten years until the the moment came, and and that moment appears to be you seeing Tom Verlaine for the first time. That was the moment during his second song and I leaned over to Terry and I said forget about putting a band together around me get the two of us together because he's missing something and what he's missing I've got and I know I'm missing something and what I'm missing he's got and you've got a lock here mm-hmm. and if you put the two of us together you'll have history you know, you'll have the band you're looking for because Terry wanted to create a whole uh, sort of ar- anarchaic scene. And his whole idea was uh, Marxist uh, or beyond Marxist. Oh, okay. like the Malcolm McLaren thing with the Sex Pistols uh, to exactly. try to create that. Mm-hmm. He wanted to create that and more. You know, he was de- definitely into film as well. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he wanted to create a scene, some, something, something – Beyond democratic, something and, anarch, an, anarchy, I guess. Well, that's definitely not television. And so you guys no, saw we were, each yeah. other, right? 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 At the beginning, we were more like that. We were nuts. Oh yeah, show- yeah. I saw. I, I have seen some of the YouTube videos of the rehearsals, and uh, when Richard Hell's in the band, and, uh, and it's it's pretty crazy. Band, it was pretty crazy, and it was to me, it was like uh, the greatest feeling on earth. Like I'd run away and joined a very, uh, you know, a circus that was better than any other circus that I knew about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I love how you look at a career in rock music as a choice between two circuses. Yeah. Well, what circuit? What other circus was there? You know, they, there's the the dangerous anything could happen circus, and then there's the Barnum and Bailey circus. Yeah. And uh, and it seems that that uh, that you know every musician comes to that choice, right? The safety net circus, and every every musician gets that choice of which one do you want to follow. That's right. But who buys a ticket to a safety net circus if you can buy one to one that doesn't have it? You don't want people to get hurt, but you want danger. You want thrills and chills. Well, at that point, sometimes people do get hurt, but uh, that's just. Well, that's the way it is. Yeah, it happens. I saw um, the first time I ever ran into or saw Sid Vicious and Nancy, I was like, those two are going down the hard way, and I wouldn't approach them with a 50-foot barge pole. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it was quite evident, huh? It was the first second, like... You know, like love at first sight, it was death at first sight. Right. Wow. It was very sad, actually, to see. And then all of the people who gathered around that scene were the punks of of the scene, the punkiest punks of the scene, some of whom are still alive and kicking. 
uh, happily to say. Yeah. 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 Through it all. So I guess Richard Hell leaves the band. You, uh, Billy, and Fred uh, joined together, and uh, and then you know television kind of begins to play a lot. And you know was one of the first bands, if not the first band, to play at Hilly's place, uh, CBGBs, right? Yeah. Well, we made the we made the rules basically: two bands a night, each plays two sets. That was because we wanted to play more. Right. It was kind of based on, uh, you know, an imitation of the Beatles at the Star Club, where they'd have to play five sets a night. Right. And that right got in Hamburg. Hurt. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was like that, you know. And in the beginning, I stood in the middle. I was like the George to uh, Richard and uh, Tom. Yeah, you were kind of, weren't you? Uh, that's exactly how I saw it. The quiet one. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, Quiet there. <laughs> right, 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 I, I did sing a couple songs. Yeah, yeah. So you you guys put two seminal albums uh, together. Um, you know, uh, Marquee Moon, obviously, uh, and and Adventure. But but then just as quickly as it all seemed to come together, um, it kind of fell apart. Yeah. I think Tom never wanted it to be a band except his band where we're paid less than him. And he figured that if he left the band, he could make a record for Elektra and get all the money and, uh, you know, pursue his own career since that. I mean, we were very popular in England, so he went to live in England after the first uh, Warner uh, Elektra. Tom Verlaine album. Right. And I got to make a, a third television album, which was Alchemy. Yeah, yeah. So I had more struggle because he was the lead singer. And obviously the lead singer is going to be given more deference than the guitar, the other guitar player. Yeah, the the voice is what, you know, non-musicians uh, will gravitate to, um, uh, you know, always at first. Keep you off the radio if it's... <laughs> if it's not the voice that's needed, right? That too. That too. So you know, I you to turn the knob the other way. It'll keep you off the radio. How the radio works is backwards from what you'd think. It's not because you're good. It's because they won't turn the knob to the commercial. <laughs> so that that's the trick. That is the real trick is to get that done. So would you would you say Seymour Stein of Sire was correct when he said uh, you guys wouldn't sell a lot of records, but you guys would be hugely influential? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, I, there's a moment uh, when I was reading the book and you you relay that uh, that time you guys are, I think, in the van and uh, you play the Cars first album and you just knew you guys were fucked. Yeah, that's kind of true. Tom said it first and then I listened and I was like, you could be right here because now they have something they can really marketing and publicity can really get behind and they can't really get behind us. They don't know what to do with this, although we'd ask them to put out uh, college radio records, and they said college radio doesn't sell records. <laughs> we asked them to make, let us make T-shirts, and it would be advertising for the band. And they said, no, we're not in the merchandising business. And, uh, you know, they just didn't know what to do with us. Wow. And they following the prescient kind of thoughts that we had so that would have helped well yeah because history shows uh, that uh, that you know other bands did that and uh, grew to be quite successful uh, they, you guys were just again uh, ahead of your time in so many ways you know I, I wonder what if television had been able to stay together if Verlaine could have maybe shared the stage a little more do you guys think you would have ruled the new wave 80s I don't postulate like that. I don't think like that. I don't wonder about alternative realities. Right. Mm-hmm. I have a saying, if you tell the truth, there's you can remember everything because there's only one storyline. Right. 
if you start telling lies or if you start fantasizing about what might have been, then you have all these separate storylines going on in your head. And that's going to prevent you from moving forward properly. I, I completely agree. I, I, I wish more people would uh, would recognize that. I know that served me well. I I picked up on that in your book that that's you know that's how you live life and uh, uh, yeah. it's it's the easy way. It is by far the easy way. And I and I know so many people who don't live like that and they just complicate and make their lives difficult. And then their lives become miserable. So you yeah. know, there's no there's no point. Yeah. Really. Honesty, the best policy. They're not kidding. So <clears throat> you go off to Bearsville to record your first solo album, Alchemy. <clears throat> that sounds like it was a little tough. Uh, the drugs really begin to take over your life. And you were also working with a producer, Michael Young, and uh, it doesn't seem like that went the way you wanted it to. No, it didn't go the way I wanted it to at the time because he put keyboards on the record. And one day Fred Smith came to me and said, Michael Young's in the in the control room putting keyboards on cheesy keyboards on your record and he's got the door locked and I went downstairs and indeed he had locked the door and was putting these uh, keyboards on various songs and uh, wouldn't open the door no matter I pounded and pounded he would not open the door and so I called the record company and I said I want to fire him and they said that's fine You'll have to pay for the next producer that you get, though, because we've already paid him in right. full. And uh, he called and told the record company, of course, uh, he's a mess and I'm saving him, you know, I'm saving the record for you guys. And, you know, I don't know how much percentage of truth is in that. I listen to the record now and I wouldn't change anything about it. Um some of the cheesy keyboard sounds don't sound so cheesy today. You know, they, their day has come and gone and gone and come and come and gone and gone and come and come around the bend and it's part of the integral structure of the record. Yeah, I, I you know, I got to that point and I, I went back and, and listened to uh, the songs and, and the funny thing is, is that I kind of came back to that thought of like, oh, it does have a little bit of that Cars keyboard sound to it, which was kind of big at the time, you know, and and I could see where maybe, um, you know, the songs are, are great. It's it's it's, you know, a song is a song, uh, you know, the 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 arrangement and uh, the affectations that you may put around it, uh, you know, might make it work in a moment or not. But, you know, a song is a song. And if it's a good song, it's a good song. And there's some very good songs on that album. Um, but but, you know, I could see where where maybe he was thinking, ah, this would be more commercially acceptable by adding uh, some of those uh, those things right. in there. So, so then, yeah. uh, blame uh, him more. Wh what's that? I don't blame him anymore. I've forgiven him a long time ago. Good, good. Yeah, and, and people should go out there and listen to 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 that. It's it's a good <laughs> album. It's a very very really good album. So, thank you. So after Alchemy, um, as you state in the books, you you enter the real depths of depravity from 1980 to 1984. And you know, I got to say, Richard, you're unbelievably honest in the book. Um, uh, you know, it's it's I can't lie. no, you 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 know, you 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 lay it all out, and you know, you you may call out. Uh, a, a couple of people here and there, but you know, you 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 point yourself, you point your finger at yourself uh, more than anything else is maybe why something didn't work, or in some cases why maybe things did work or should have worked if uh, if you had a little bit more say in there. So right. you know, um, you know, I, I kind of think of it. It's a, it's a weird thing. I kind of think of it like you know, you're an uh, uh, an ancient ascetic monk uh, searching to become a Buddha, uh, and uh, I also like how you compare this time to your life and, and I mean that throughout your whole life is this you know chasing this trying that uh, to, to get the experience to see if it moves you forward uh, and uh, but I, I like how you compare this time in your life to the depression of the 1930s you know so I'm going to ask you would you care to talk a little bit about this or should we just move on to the brightness of uh, the Swedish savior and your adventure in the cold white north I don't mind talking about it um, to me, there was a whole downturn 
artistically at that time, I guess it was what, did, was Reagan elected or something? Yeah, yeah, he was. And there was this huge artistic depression, mm -hmm. and I suffered from it. And, you know, hair bands and corporate <laughs> rock yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah, I had to live through that myself. But then, as we said, redemption with uh, Field of Fires. I'm sorry, Field of Fire. Yeah, well, uh, I got myself, finally, I got myself pulled out of that uh, tailspin and got my feet firmly on the ground. And about 70 days after I got uh, clean and sober, uh, a phone rang in the middle of the night and it was a friend of mine who had gone to Stockholm to escape his own drug problems and he said the first words out of his mouth were there's a guy over here who wants you to make a record for him do you want to make a record and I thought sure I had a prayer on my lap that was about give me a sign and here the phone rang while it was still the ink wasn't dry. So I had to say yes. Right. The universe was talking, huh? At that point, either, either it was, you know, Jungian synchronicity or it was prayers being, the prayer was answered or who knows, I believe in the efficacy of honest, humble, real prayer. And I think it can move mountains, as it were. The old, if I wanted the Eiffel Tower in my backyard, it would be there tomorrow. Right, right. Ups down. Yeah, and it, it, it helped pull you out, uh, put you back on a, a positive path of, you know, which you've pretty much been on since. I mean, uh, the rest of the 80s and the 90s, you know, you're sober, you're working with people like John Doe of X, Matthew Sweet, and then television's revival in 1992, which you stayed until 2007. Uh, I guess whenever Verlaine decided to put the thing back together, it seems like. It wasn't Verlaine, it was... Tom's manager and my manager at a at a gathering talking with each other and one said what's Tom you know the one guy in helping me said what's Tom doing and his guy said no not much and he said what's Richard doing <laughs> you know not much and uh, well why don't we try to get them back together and that's what happened and it took about a year of sitting in cafes and drinking coffee and arguing with Tom until we actually decided we would. And then I brought it to my lawyer, who was Clyde Davis's son at the time. Yeah, Fred Davis. Shop, shopped the record around, mm -hmm. got us the deal with Capital. And uh, right after the record came out, everything at Capital changed. And that uh, they dropped six acts. And we were one of the acts, and uh, that got act. We got the. We were one of the acts that got <laughs> the, the, the acts. acts. <laughs> right, That's right. 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 Well, we started yeah. playing live. You know, people wanted to. There were a few, a few uh, festivals and this and that where they wanted us to play, especially this thing called Meltdown. One was curated by. Uh, David Bowie, and he asked us to play. One was curated by Patti Smith. She asked us to play. And uh, one was done by a band called Out of Chicago. I can't remember their name now. My apologies to them. I keep thinking Turtle. Tortoise. Tortoise. Tortoise, right. Tortoise. Yeah, it was Turtle, Tortoise. Tortoise was my, uh, Turtle was a nickname given to me because I wore turtlenecks. When I was a teenager, that's not in the book, but <laughs> hey, we're making news today, folks, you know, so there you go. So then, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, you have uh, uh, the cover doesn't matter in 2001, Radiant Monkey right. in 2007, Jamie Nevert's story in 2009, and then last year, Rosedale, right? Yeah, and uh, Lodestones, which came out somewhere in between. Uh, but uh, never got pressed into CDs or made into a record. 
So I, I have a feeling you look at the world more in impressions than in hard realities. You you think in magical terms, <laughs> like your yeah, like your adventures with Velvet and uh, the use of the power of wish, your absorption of Jimmy's punch, and how you think about intoxication, or as you're being committed in a psych institution as adventures. Is that a fair description of your personal philosophy? Yeah, except if I actually, I mean, I live by impressions, but not as deeply as Van Gogh. <laughs> well, that, I mean, sure, not not maybe as a painter, but, uh, you know, you still are an artist and you look at the world not in those hard realities of, no. you know, like analytical well, people do, you know, more in the, the, the and, you know, the and, softness of it. I can be analytical too, but I'm not. I mean, I do believe in magic, and I do believe in uh, the power of the wish and the will and the soul, you know, and uh, not everybody has that capacity though. Uh, the gifts are not given out indiscriminately and they're not given out equally. Or, you know, they all people are born equal. Well, they're in some regards they are, and in some regards they're born as deeply di different as a rock is from a potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, the attributes are spread like fairy dust across the entire human population. And you know, the, most people think that because Einstein thought of V equals M C squared, that they're that intelligent. You know, they know the formula. They know the formula. So they think that that's what's going on. And they don't see that those are the mountain peaks in, of humanity and that there are not that many of them. Right. That right. high, you know, the Mount Everest of humanity or the even the lower peaks. Most are in the plains happily. Right. Daydreaming away watching pseudo-life television. Where the limbic brain system can't tell the difference between an experience seen and an experience experienced. Felt, right, right. Last question. Okay. Of all the people you have met or worked with, and you, and you mentioned this ability in the book several times, who do you think rose above the rest with that elusive X factor? Oh, I'm not going to answer that because there's, as I said earlier, there is, look at a bar. You've got house brand, you've got this, you've got middle shelf, and you have top shelf. And there's more than one thing on top shelf. And there's no single, like, exemplary oneness that's like nothing else ever will touched it or will touch it or in any endeavor in, in life. There's always going to be people that are excellent and there's going to be more than one of them. And often ideas are brought out simultaneously in different parts of the world by different people. So I can't answer that. Yeah, I do know that I recognize the, the elusive it and that some people have it in greater or larger quantities than others and some people have it you know and uh but i i can't say one i can't pick out one person well, richard I, I really appreciate all your time today um it's a, a fantastic book uh i really enjoyed reading it and um and thanks for being with us here at deeper digs and rock my pleasure So, has this guy seen some shit or what? 
Thank you, Richard Lloyd, for sharing some of your special brand of craziness with us. Once again, Richard's got a great memoir out. Everything is combustible. And if you type everythingiscombustible.com into your web browser, uh, that will take you right to it. Do it. Go read this one. You can thank us later. Thanks for stopping by, diggers. You are brilliant, courageous, and attractive, all of you. And we expect you back soon. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Keep up the rockin'. Bye for now. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.